Well, good morning and welcome to Canton Church on Mother's Day. Mothers, are you tired in the room today? <laughs> I am a mother of four beautiful babies, but I am a tired mama. I came with nails painted by my five-year-old, so if you see it all over my hands, please excuse me. I have loved this week seeing all of your pictures on social media of all of the wonderful things your kids have made you if you have toddlers or grade school kids. They have been just precious to see what they think of you as a mother. So happy Mother's Day, and here at Canton, we're right in the middle of our family series. And today we thought we would just look at families in the Bible. You know, Mother's Day is hard sometimes for pastors and preachers or speakers because there are all different kinds of people in this room today. There aren't just mothers. Those are, there are in this room today people who want to be mothers and haven't yet become a mother, those that are too young to be mothers, actual mothers. And so this week I ran across um, a writing from somebody that wrote something that was so great and it pretty much sums up everything that I feel needs to be said today and so I thought I would just open today by reading somebody else's words because it's exactly how I feel today and it says this to those who gave birth this year to their first child we celebrate you to those who lost a child this year we mourn with you to those who are in the trenches with little ones every day and wear the beautiful badge of food stains we appreciate you. To those who experience loss through miscarriages, failed adoptions, or running away, we mourn with you. To those who walk the hard path of infertility, fraught with pokes, prods, tears, and disappointments, we walk with you today. Forgive us when we say foolish things we don't mean to make it harder than it is. To those who foster moms, mentor moms, and spiritual moms, we need you in this room. To those who have warm and close relationships with your children, we celebrate with you today. To those who have disappointment, heartache, and distance with your children, we sit with you. To those who have lost their mothers this year or in the past, we grieve with you. To those who experience abuse at, abuse at the hand of your own mother, we acknowledge your experience. To those who lived through driving tests, medical tests, and overall testing of motherhood, we are better for having you in our midst today to those who are single. Our single mom is in the room and, and long to be married and mothering your own children. We mourn with you that life hasn't turned out like you probably planned. And to those who step parent, we walk with you through the complex journey that is your life. To those who envisioned lavishing love on grandchildren yet have not had that dream realized, we grieve with you. To those who are empty nesters in the upcoming year, we grieve with you and we rejoice with you. And to those who place children up for adoption, can we just say today that we commend you for your selflessness? Remember how you hold that child close to your heart. And to those who are pregnant with new life, both expectant and surprises, we anticipate with you today on this Mother's Day. You know, I mean, that's a pretty exhaustive list. But I think what it does, I didn't mean for that to be funny. <laughs> I think what it does is it captures. We have the wrong chairs. You want this one? No, we're good. You good? I think I just weigh more than you do. <laughs> um, I think that list captures so many different people in the room because what it does is it says if you're a mom, Happy Mother's Day. If you want to be a mom, happy Mother's Day. If you've lost a mom, happy mom. Like, there's so many emotions that are connected to that. And I think on this day, one of the 
greatest things that we could do is not just to give our opinion on parenting because we have a, a very limited understanding of parenting to our own kids at this stage of life that we're in and what motherhood and parenting and family is all about. So I think going to God's word is always um, the correct thing to do in a situation like this. So if you've got a Bible, I want you to flip with me to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. Feel free to use your table of contents. You paid for it. Um, and so it's yours. Um, or you can look it up there at the beginning of the app or whatever you're looking there using. It, these these uh, scriptures should be on the screen today. But we're going to look at the story of Ruth and Naomi, this, this really powerful um, story in the Old Testament that helps to, us to see family in a little different way, a little unique flavor on this Mother's Day as we continue in our Family Matters series. We're going to begin reading in chapter 1, verse 1. We'll read a few verses here, and then we'll continue. This is what it says in Ruth 1, beginning in 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of this man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left there with her two sons. And these two sons took Moabite wives. The name of one of them was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, there's a lot of things that are happening in this story, but I think it's interesting for us to see that this story really centers around even though the book is named Ruth, this story centers around the, the woman Naomi. And Naomi and her husband and her two sons moved away from their home place there in Bethlehem. This, they were Ephrathite people in Bethlehem. They moved to the land of Moab. And they get to that land. And during that time that they lived there, her husband, Elimelech, dies. So now she's left just with her two sons. Now in that culture, once your husband died, you didn't have anybody to provide for you. You were still okay and you were still considered a kind of an upstanding, right standing citizen in that country because she had sons. But once her sons die, now she's left to nothing to be recognized in that, in that culture. But she is left with two daughters-in-law. And so she has herself and these two daughters-in-law. And that's kind of where this story is going to, to roll for the next um, few verses in chapter one. And then we'll see one of those daughters hang with Naomi through the rest of this passage. But one of the things that I think is interesting to start is the very first verse of Ruth chapter one. It says, in the days when the judges ruled or ruled the earth, there was famine in the land. This season of time in the history of the children of Israel was not a great season. This was prior to kings ruling the people. And so this was a, a, a season where, where you had judges ruling. And they were still used by God in a lot of different ways to help the people. But this was not a great season. The world was in chaos in this season of time. And in these people, in the, in the children of Israel especially, there were so many things that were happening. And so what we're going to see in this story of Ruth is that this family unit is really depicted as a safe haven in the midst of a chaotic world. In the midst of all the things that are happening in this season of time, in the children of Israel and the history there, we see this family unit that is lifted up and raised up as something that we can look to to see kind of safety and peace that exists in there, even in the midst of their own adversity. Her husband died. Her two sons die. And so we're going to watch this family dynamic kind of happen. And so I know in our family, we've got younger kids still, grade school going into middle school now, but um, in our family, our home and our family being a safe haven, being a safe place for our kids, that's been important for us. We've talked about that since even before we had kids. Why do you think that's important for you as a mom? Well, one, I, I want my kids to want to be home, right. you know. But I think it's creating a safe place is sometimes 
you know, harder to do than actually to say. Um, I think that growing up in my home, my mom was a single mom, yet all, we had a very small home. Um, it wasn't decorated the finest, but as I got older, I recognized that all of my friends and my siblings' friends always wanted to be at my mom's house, at our house. And it was baffling to me because there were people that had much larger homes and much nicer homes, much nicer things. She did always have food in the cabinet, which is probably why I think That's all right. these people decided to come back. She fed them. She also had three teenagers. cute daughters, right? That was kind of the fun. <laughs> Um, but she created this environment. I remember I was about 17 years old, and there was this one girl, and she came to the house all the time. I mean, she would be, like, at our house in our driveway before we even got home sometimes. And so I remember asking her, like, why do you come over to our house all the time? Like, why? I loved her, but I'm saying, like, what brings you here? She said, because it's a place I feel loved. You know, that, even at 17 years old, spoke so deeply to me that this was a place that she felt loved. She felt valued. And I remember having this longing to always want to be a mom and be a wife and, and love on my children. But it was so impactful in that moment to go, you know what, I want our kids and their friends to want to come to our house, to want to be in our home. And I found that sometimes in the chaos of homework and busyness, I forget that I want everybody over at our house. But there are some things I think that make them wanting to be home important. I think it's the idea of valuing your children, not at, at, at any age, not that they, they understand their worth to you, they understand their value to you, that at whatever age they contribute something to your home, I think that anybody shows up to a place where they feel valued. I think that that girl came back to my mom's home because she felt valued there. I think if your kids understand their worth and you allow them to understand their worth, they will want to be in your home. I think if you take your kids seriously, they'll take themselves seriously. And I think it only sets them up to want to be more in the future for their home, their kids, and their family. I think for parents, it really is about instilling in them that God has a plan for your life, a purpose for you, and this house isn't always clean. It may not be the biggest and the nicest. I will always feed you. Sometimes you'll be disciplined, but you will always know your worth. And I think that if we can accomplish that as parents and understand and help them understand that God has a plan for their life and they're valued, then it will always be a place that they want to return home to. You know, when we were in student ministry, we spent about 10 years in student ministry. We used to talk in the training sessions with our volunteer leaders and camp counselors when we were going away for camps and retreats. And, and I had read this somewhere. I can't even remember where I had read it. And I used to say all the time that you know, teenagers, especially in the context we were talking about, but I think children too, they gravitate to the oldest person that takes them seriously. Teenagers, children, they gravitate to the oldest person that takes them seriously. And I think in our homes, we have a special place as parents or even as aunts and uncles or even as grandparents to say, hey, you know, to my grandchild, to my teenager, to my child, whatever age, I take you seriously. There's something that you have that is unique to you and there's value in that. And I affirm that and I love that about you. And I think that helps to our kids to see that this is a place that you can find value and you can be affirmed. Andy Stanley's a pastor here in Atlanta. Many of us know his name. He's a a great influence in the church world, but um, as it relates to parenting, I heard him say one time that the primary goal that he and his wife had in raising their kids, who are now college age and beyond, was that when their kids were old enough to choose, they wanted them to choose to come back home. Now, not to live forever, right? He wanted them to move on and do their own thing, 
but come home for holidays, come home for vacation, bring your new boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse home with you to meet us. And so the idea being that for them, their primary goal was when their kids get old enough to choose to do so or choose not to do so, that they would choose to come home. And I think however you contextualize that for your family or the stage of life that you may be in, I think that's a really a cool kind of principle or guiding principle in the raising of your family and your children and your, your grandchildren. And so maybe you're today, you're saying, well, that sounds really idealistic and my kids are now grown or, you know, we've got grandkids or even great grandkids and this, they don't come home as often as I want. Um, but I would say it's not too late. Maybe it needs some forgiveness in some relationships. Maybe there needs to be some valuing and affirming, even now in this stage of life, that says, hey, if I, we come home and you know, we won't get into the same fight we get into every Thanksgiving day, right? Um, but maybe there's a way that you can bridge that gap. Let's jump back into the story of Ruth, continuing in chapter 1. We're going to read verse 7, and then we'll jump to verse 11. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. This is talking about Naomi. And they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. Skip to verse 11. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, and go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voice and they wept again. And Orpah, one of the daughter-in-laws, kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Such a powerful picture here. This is a Moabite woman who had never actually been to the land of Judah that we understand. They lived over in the land of Moab for 10 years with this family, and she married one of those sons, and so they're still there. And now as they're going back, Orpah, even though she cries and she says she wouldn't leave, eventually she does leave and go away and go back to her home country. But we see in this Naomi and Ruth, they they then travel together back to the place where uh, Naomi is from. And she says, hey, Ruth says to her, listen, my people will be your people my land will be your land. Your gods will be my gods. Like There's this kind of affirmation of, of the relationship that exists there and the circumstances, even though that they're bad. Like, hey, I'm in this with you. That's an incredible picture of family. Now, I'm not a daughter-in-law. Um, I'm also not a mother-in-law and never will be. Um, but I know that that relationship can be interesting, um, to say the least. But I think it doesn't always have to be really tense and, and all about fighting. And I mean, what does that look like for you? Oh, the dreaded mother-in-law title. <laughs> I think that society probably does us a disservice by calling us mother-in-laws. Well, I'm not a mother-in-law yet, but the, the title, because you almost cringe when you hear it. And then God gave me three boys. I have four children, one little girl that have three boys. I will one day be the dreaded mother-in-law, yeah. I think. Yeah. Ah, I hope it's not dreaded. <laughs> but the mother-in-law. And I think in this picture, you see a couple of things um, from Scripture. You see that family isn't just blood. You see that family is, is a bond that isn't, isn't easily broken. My favorite part of the story is when Naomi sa- or when Ruth says to Naomi, your people will be my people. I think it's a picture of marriage even um, in this scripture, even though it's a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. 
I think when we go to the altar to get married, if you're married in this room, you stand up in front of a group of people and, and, and under God, and, and you kind of commit one another or to yourselves to one another in that moment. And I think sometimes even after that moment, you still kind of say, like, those are your people, and these are my people, and that is your group, and this is my group. And I think that if we look at, ma at marriage in the Bible, if we look at family in the Bible, I think we stand in front of that group of people, in front of the pastor that's marrying us, and in front of God, and we say, your people are my people. And I think that when we do that, we understand that family bond and family unit and in-laws that they are not our enemy. Right. Family is not our enemy. They are not against us. They are for us. And if you have relationships in this room that need to be bonded and brought back together, I encourage you, write them a note, call them, and make sure that you are keeping family together and you're realizing that they're not your enemy, but that together family unit is strong and helps you raise your children and helps you parent and gives you wisdom at different stages of your life. Family is not your enemy. Family is thick and is, is a bond that God created early in Scripture. So what you see in this story, you've got Ruth and Naomi. They go back and they travel back to Bethlehem. And so now in this story, for the remaining time, chapters 2, 3, 4, moving forward in this story, what you see here is you see Ruth and Naomi then get back to Bethlehem, and they're two women living kind of by themselves. In that culture, they would have had no standing. They couldn't have really provided for themselves other than to work for someone else. And so Naomi sends Ruth out into a field, and she wants her to go and find some food for them. And so she goes out, and she says, there's a distant relative of ours, and see, he's got some land, he's got some property. Go and see if you can get some food for us. And so she goes, and this distant relative, Boaz, there's people working in the field, and so she follows along behind the people that are pulling the grain and pulling the food off of the vine there. And so she goes, and she just follows behind them. And anything that they leave laying on the ground, she gets for herself. That was a, a custom of that day. That wasn't something that she was stealing. It was something that could, could definitely be done. And so Boaz finds out about this, and he asks who she is, and he finds out who she is, and the story about this family that's now come back to the area, and a relative of his, and he hears the amazing story of Naomi and Ruth, and how they've been come together, and so we see this story play out, and so eventually what happens is that Boaz, Boaz buys some land that Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, some land that he had, and so he buys that land. Now what he's doing is this is a, a custom in this Old Testament type of culture called kinsman redeemer. It's a kinsman, it's a relative who is redeeming the property, redeeming the value of that family member. And so he is now providing for all of the needs of Naomi. What he's saying is, I'm going to buy this land as if I were your own husband or your own provider. I'm going to take care, for you, take care of you. As long as I'm living, you will never want for anything. And so he buys the property. And then later in the story, he actually brings uh, Ruth to him and he marries her. And so now he is providing for this mother-in-law of a, this distant relative. He's now married to this woman who was a widow. And so what we see is this incredible thing where the story, the, the family unit is helping to preserve itself. Now, again, what Corey just talked about, our family's not our enemy. And, and maybe you've got some people in your family that you think they are your enemy. And like she said, maybe you need to write an email, write a note, make a phone call, send a text today on this Mother's Day. It just says, hey, I'm sorry, or I want to call you this week. Let's, let's set things right. Because we're family, and, and family's not just about blood. It's, it's about your people being my people. And so what we see in this story is that Boaz, he says, hey, you're, you're mine, and I'm going to care for you, and I'm going to take care of you. In the days of Judges, when, when the world was in chaos, you see this family unit that is raised up to protect one another, to care for one another. 
And, and so Boaz and Ruth have a child named Obed. And Obed is the father of Jesse, and Jesse is the father of David. Now, David eventually grows up to be king, and he replaces Saul as the king over the children of Israel. And as he does, there's some enemies of the children of Israel, the Gibeonites. And so they say, hey, we're at war with you. We're fighting with you. And David says, well, what can I do to make things right? And the Gibeonites say, here's what you need to do. Send us the seven sons of Saul. The seven sons of Saul. Saul was mean to us. He did terrible things to our people. Send us the seven sons of Saul and we'll be clean. And so David does that. He gives the seven sons of Saul over to the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites have them killed. And they put them, they hang them up into this field after they die. Well, there's a problem. Two of those seven boys had a mama. And that mama did not want those boys to be hung there in that field, even after death, and have the wild birds and the wild animals to attack their, their carcass at that point. And so she decides she's going to go into that field and stay there with her boys. And in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10, this is what it says. Then Rispah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock. And from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens and she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. You see this continuation of this incredible family story here in 2 Samuel chapter 21. That even beyond death, Rizpah understood that her role as a mother was to protect her children. My mom, who's no longer with us, this is the sixth Mother's Day that I've celebrated without her here on earth, was an incredible protector there were some things she was protecting me from that I did not appreciate that she was protecting me from. There were girls that I wanted to date, and I would bring them home, and I would introduce them to my mom. And after that girl would leave, my mom would just look at me as only a mother can do and go, no. <laughs> no. And I was like, yes. And she would be like, no. She was protecting me. And I realize now, thinking back to some of those girls, like she was really wise in trying to protect me. There's, there, were, there were things that I'd say, hey, I want to go and do this. I want to, you know, I'd like to go and hang out with these people. I'll be home later. And she was like, no, you got to come home a little earlier than you want to. You can't go to that place. There, were, there was a protection that my mom provided for me when I was growing up. And I know even into adulthood, uh, maybe you didn't have this struggle. But even when I became an adult, even when I got married and I, we started having kids, like my parents struggled to kind of disengage from that protecting kind of role in my life. And my dad says all the time, there's no handbook for raising kids. Like, there's no chapter on how you let your kids go. Um, but I know that even in this passage, what we see is that there was a mother here that viewed her role as the protector of her sons, the protector of her children. And so um, what role does protection play in your role as a mom for your kids? Well, mothering is not for the faint of heart. I think that if you are a mother in this room and your kids have ever come home and said somebody is mean to them or somebody hurt them, there is something that like rises up in you as a mother. And if you almost forget that you're talking about seven-year-olds and you're like, I'm going to get that kid, you know? They're not going to talk to you that way. But there's this protection, this protective nature inside of us as, as mothers. But I think it starts from the moment you find out you're conceiving this child. You know, you take care of your body while you're pregnant. You are protecting that baby. And then the baby is born, and then you protect them from, like, the outside world. You're like, no germs will ever touch you. You almost like, you know, saran wrap them. You're not going to Walmart until you're 15. You know, like, <laughs> keep them locked in the house, and you're protecting them. And then they enter the toddler stage, and you, like, barricade everything in your home, and you child-safe-proof everything on the off chance that they'll get under the cabinet and get something that they shouldn't. 
And the mothering and protection is all about stages of protecting your child. And it looks different the older they get. You know, I have a, Cooper is in fifth grade. He's about to finish fifth grade. He'll be in sixth grade. And I protect him differently than I protect Kinley, our four-year-old. Because, see, protection isn't just about making sure they don't run too fast, trip and fall, and skin their knee. It's about the awareness that I can see some things in front of you that you can't see yet. And so as a toddler, you understand that the things underneath the cabinet are dangerous to them, and they don't know that. You're protecting them from that. But Cooper, who wants unlimited access to the computer, I understand that even though he's not aware of it yet, there are things that he can see on there that he shouldn't because I'm protecting him. It's almost as if God gives us like this, for, like this you know, premonition or so, of such, you know, that you kind of are aware of things that are to come, and so you, you protect your children from that. God does that for us even in our lives. You know, so we are, we are called as parents and as mothers to protect our children. You know, I want in this stage of life to be able to instill not only protection into our children, but wisdom into our children so that as they are older and they may not under, understand every decision that I make as a mom, but that I can instill in them wisdom that says to them that as they get older, that I am protecting you for God's best for your life. I believe God has a plan for you, a purpose for you. You are not here by accident, and my job as your mom is to make sure to the best of my ability, I raise you in a way that allows God to allow you to become everything that he desires for you to become. And so my job is to protect them from the things that they can't see yet so that one day when they're older and they have children, they understand a little more why mom said no to the girl. Why mom said no to staying out late so that then in return they can protect their children to become everything that God created their children to be. And then you start to get a biblical picture of what family is, that it is just one step after another fulfilling the plan of God. Just like Jeremy said, that Je this long lineage of family where Jesse ends up becoming the father of David. It is the picture of family, and our job is to protect our children, not to shield them and keep them from any harm or any danger and lock them in our home, but to understand that God has a plan and a purpose for their life. And our job is to protect them from the things that they can't quite see or understand yet. You know, sometimes protection takes the form of discipline. And one of the greatest things I ever heard about parenting was that we don't discipline to just correct bad behavior. We discipline to help create good behavior in our kids. And so this idea that we're helping to shape and to mold through the protective nature of parenting and families. But when I look at this story of Ruth, when I look at this story of Naomi, when I see the story of Boaz come into the picture here, what I see is this kinsman redeemer. I see this idea that there's a family relative who comes in to redeem what could have been lost in that family structure. And today, I don't know where you land in the family continuum. Some of the things that we read earlier that Corey read to start, I don't know where you land in that. Maybe it still didn't even connect to where you're at at this place or stage of life. But here's what I know. God designed the idea of family. He originated the idea of family all the way back in Genesis when he formed Adam and he created Eve and he put them together. And eventually they had Cain and Abel. Like there's this idea that God designed families for a greater purpose. And so maybe today your family has some brokenness in it. Maybe there's something that you wish was different. 
Maybe on this Mother's Day, you're just you're kind of regretting some decisions and some conversations and some things that you said or some things that other people said or some things that were done. Here's what I would say. The idea of family can be a safe haven in the midst of chaos if we're willing to engage family, if we're willing to lean into family and not push back from it. The story of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi and kinsman redeemer. Well, guess what? Even beyond a kinsman redeemer, there is a redeemer. Jesus Christ, through the sacrifice of his own body on the cross, serves as our redeemer. Now, we go to that to talk about salvation. We go to that to talk about healing. Well, guess what? He can redeem your family. He can save your family. He can forgive brokenness and hurts and pains. And so I encourage you today, on this day, when we're talking about this story and this family, talking about mothers and we're talking about fathers and grandmothering and grandfathering and aunts and uncles or maybe you haven't entered any of those stages yet what i would say to you is trust god as your personal redeemer and trust god as your family redeemer he desires to redeem your family and so it may require a hard conversation it may require an email or a text it may require you to go and say some things to someone that you've been not wanting to say It may mean if they've hurt you, but they haven't engaged you yet, that you go back and just say, listen, I forgive you. I'm sorry that things turned out the way that they did. It may be that you go and re-engage your kids who don't want to come home right now, and you say, listen, the door is always open. I'm sorry for what happened back there. I'm sorry for things. I don't, you know, maybe I haven't agreed with every decision you made, but I want you to know the door is always open. And you just begin affirming and showing value to them. Maybe it means disciplining your kids because that's the stage that it's requiring right now. Trusting God as the redeemer for your family. If nothing else on this Mother's Day, speaking to moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles, whatever, I would say this to you. You are not the redeemer of your family. You can't save your family. Only he can. You can do your best. You can try your best. You can do all the homework math problems with them. You can feed them as much as you want to and have the best snacks in the neighborhood. You cannot save your family. You have to trust God to do that work. So what we've seen today is that family is a safe haven. Family isn't our enemy. And family can be about protection. And so today what I thought would be really appropriate, I think my wife prays some of the most powerful prayers I've ever heard in my whole life. And I've asked her just to pray over our families. If you're single in the room, if you're married, if you're not married, if you're divorced, if you're remarried, if you're grandmas and grandpa, wherever you're at in this stage of life, just praying for your family to be a safe haven. Praying for reconciliation so that family can not be our enemies, but be kind of helping make us stronger. And pray that we as family units would protect one another and care for one another. So I'm just going to ask you just to pray for our families this morning. All right. Will you all stand with me today? Let's pray together. You grab the person's hand standing beside you. Let's pray today. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for each individual in this room. Mother, father, grandma, grandpa, single, child, whatever the place, whatever the person. I thank you for them in this room today. I believe that early in scripture, you designed family, and I also believe that the enemy would like nothing more than to rob us of family. So I pray right now a divine hedge of protection over every family represented in this room. 
I pray for every infant, every toddler, every grade school child, every teenager, that you would lead, guide, and direct their life. That they would come to know you at an early age and that you would protect them and that you would grow them and keep them and that they would follow hard after you and that their families would be blessed. I pray right now for every mother in this room who feels like she has screwed it up already, that you would redeem the relationships in their life. I pray for the tired mamas and the sleepy mamas and the mamas that feel like they don't have it all together, that you would be enough for them and that even in the mess ups, you would do the work, that all they have to do is lean on you and try their best and you would do the rest. I pray for dads in this room today that they would rise up and be the head of their household. I pray for grandparents that they would instill wisdom into us as parents, young and old. I pray for a divine hedge of protection over marriages and relationships and those who want to be pregnant and have children that you would do a miracle in their lives. Those single individuals who want to be married, Father, that you would bring the right person into their life at the right time. I believe that your word is true, that you have a plan for our lives and a plan for our family. And I believe here at Canton Church, you desire the same. And so I pray right now for everyone in this room yes, and every family in this room yes, that we would be a blessed people, a godly people, and that we would honor you in the way that we live and the things that we do. We commit our homes to you. We commit our lives to you. We commit our children to you and our families. And we'll give you all the glory for all the things you're going to do in us, through us, and in our children. We'll give you all the glory for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.